Welcome to you on the internet who are watching. Welcome all of you. We're glad you're here. Uh, just a fun story about, we, I'm just hearing more and more stories about people who are going to church online or whatever, for whatever reason, they're not around a, a, a local place. Cool story is a family in Kuwait that had Parkview connections back in the day. Family in Kuwait was watching our service when we were doing child sponsorships, and they sponsored a kid in Africa from Kuwait via the internet back via here. Isn't that cool? I mean, welcome to you. We're glad you're here. Uh, <clears throat> All right, so, uh, so while I'm doing throwback, uh, it was the summer of 1972. Harlow's loaded up the family truckster on our way to uh, California. I mean, it was, it was vacation. It was, it was the Griswolds minus the dead lady on top. It was everything exactly the same. We were so excited. We were going on this cross-country trip. And, and if you remember back in the day, I mean, it, it, the air conditioning didn't work well if it worked at all, and it was, it was hot. I didn't even know my parents were in here. Crud, now I've got to tell the story, and they're sitting here. Hi, guys. Um, vinyl seats, okay? You remember vinyl seats? That's, that's the deal, right? So in the summertime, you just li- literally peeled the skin off your legs when you were getting off. You remember the Lionel seats? But the problem was in the winter, you got like, uh, you know, it's like somebody sprayed Pam on them, you know, because you're just like sliding around, praying that the door is locked that you're getting ready to run into because there were no seat belts back in that day. I mean, that was, just not, that was just not the way it was. Just me and my sister in the back seat, which worked out good because I could just shove her back in that window thing and I could have the whole back seat to myself because, again... No seatbelts, right? Remember all that. Um, until my parents would get mad at me and they'd say, Timmy, you need to let Dana have a seat. And so I would try to sleep on the floorboard, right? Before front wheel drive, before they'd invented that. So you had that drive train hump that was right there in the middle and you try to sleep on it. And I think that's probably why I have back problems to this very day, okay? We were on our way to a national uh, Christian convention, which we went to every year. Um, which is a lot of fun. It was for families. And ironically, I'm the president of that convention this next year. It's going to be in Indianapolis. But we were excited about that. What we were really excited about, me and my sister, was we were going to Disneyland. Remember the first time you got to go to a, you know, Wally World, to Disney World, whatever, wherever it was that you were going. And we were so excited because that's where we were headed. And my parents had tried to prepare me for, you know, what, was, what it was going to be like and, and what it would be there. You know, we had the brochures. We had the trip thing from AAA, you know, that you had to get right before you went on the big trip. My mom always had it all planned out. And, and they tried to describe it to me, but they'd never been there. And they couldn't really describe it either. And, and, there, and, and there was no way, you know this, if you have this feeling in your mind, there was no no way that anybody could have possibly described for me what it was going to be like stepping off that tram and walking through the front gate and seeing Disneyland for the very first time. I mean, you know, the colors, the flowers, the, you know, the bushes that spelled stuff, the bushes that looked like characters, the, the, the music, walking in and seeing that, you know, that, that castle. Now, it was, it was unbelievable. There's no way they could have prepared me for it. No possible way I could have imagined what it was going to be like in any way. My sister was younger, so she didn't care about all that. She was all about the characters, you know. She just wanted to hug Mickey Mouse and, you know, see Donald Duck. And there's Goofy and there's Pluto. Wait a minute. Are they the same thing? I never did figure that out, right? And there's Cinderella and her castle and Peter Pan and Pinocchio. They even let liars into Disneyland. What an amazing place this is. I was speechless. My sister was speechless. Walt Disney said my dream was to create a place where adults could be kids again, and and I think he did that. Well, Jesus kind of said the same kind of thing about where we're going to go for eternity, and it's going to be better than Disneyland. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you. Would I not have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place, I'm going to come back and take you to be with me so that you can be where I am. You know where I'm going. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to this place. And I'm, I, if you weren't here last week, I described this place out of the book of Revelation. We talked about all the amazing things that are going to happen on that day when we finally get to be there. Now, what I started to ask myself was, if Jesus is prepping for eternity all this time, shouldn't we be prepping? How many of you are uh, familiar with the show Doomsday Preppers? Have you seen it, National Geographic? Okay. I mean, you need to be prepared for the future. These people are a little over the top. They got bunkers and, you know, all the guns and all the kind of stuff. And it's a little over the top. But, but my parents had prepared for the trip. My parents had gone to AAA. They had budgeted, you know, they'd mapped out how we could get to the world's largest ball of twine on our way to California from Oklahoma City. And they had budgeted and they'd put their motel reservations in and they'd done all that stuff. And it seems to me like maybe the prepper idea is not a bad one. Maybe these people are a little over the top. But there's a, there's a growing segment in in our population that really wants to try to prepare for the future. Now, these people are preparing for the end of civilization. You know, they're, they're preparing for, you know, calamities, nuclear war, social collapse, zombies, whatever it is that's going to happen. They're ready for it, okay? And I'm doubting that anybody's going to raise their hand and tell me they're a full-fledged prepper out here today, but let me just do a little test. How many of you know, just hold your hand up, how many of you know what an MRE is? MRE. Oh, look at this, okay? All right, keep your hands up because we all need to know where we're going if there's a calamity. These are the people that have meals ready to eat, okay? MREs are meals ready to eat. It's just a fancy word for Vienna sausages in a can, but, but you, you, got to, you got to have a few of them stockpiled. That's who these people are. And, and I understand that, you know, a guy came to me and said, hey, we got to do this series. It really made a lot of sense to me, but when I started looking into doomsday preppers, it really fascinated me because doomsday is a religious word. It's about the day of last judgment. Understand that, right? Jesus said on the day of last judgment, here's what it's going to be like. It's going to be like Noah and the flood. No one knows the day or the hour these things are going to happen, not even the angels or the Son of Himself, only the Father. And when the Son of Man returns, it will be like Noah's day. In the days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up until the time Noah entered the boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. And that is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. Two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the meal. One will be taken and one left. I mean, it's going to be a Cinderella moment, literally. Someday, all of a sudden, the clock's going to strike 12, and we're going to be out of time, and we're going to run out, you know, just like Sweet Brown. Then I ran out. I didn't grab my shoes or nothing, Jesus. It's going to be one of those. And listen, I'm just going to keep using her until you all go on the Internet and watch this on YouTube. I'm just going to tell you. But, but you have questions, right? You have questions like, am I going to know my friends there? How long is it going to take? Will I remember my life here on earth? What's going to get me to heaven and hell? All those things are good questions, right? So that's what we're going to do for the next couple of weeks. I know next week is Mother's Day. You don't want to miss next week, especially if you're a fan of the group fun. I mean, it's going to be some great stuff going on next week. But I'm going to talk about taking your kids to heaven. Because I think this is something that we should be doing. We should be prepping, all right? Luke 16 is a story, uh, you can start bringing your Bibles back again now that we're done with the story, but I'm going to be in Luke 16 today. It's kind of hard to determine how we should take the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Because it seems like a parable, in which case you wouldn't necessarily take things literally in a parable. But he gives a guy a name, and he doesn't do that in any other parable. So we have a hard time trying to figure out exactly how much we should read into this story. 
But it's safe to talk about the emotions and, and the discussions of what happens to us on doomsday or on the day that we die, all right? So I'm going to be in uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. And at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. Okay. I, I, I want to give you three biblical truths today about what's going to happen on doomsday or the day you die. Either way. All right. We'll talk about the whole thing. The first one is that your soul lives on. Now, I want to be clear about a couple of things along the way. I'm going to use this passage to do a little bit of side teaching along the way. And I want to be clear about something. I don't want you to think that rich people go to hell and poor beggars go to heaven. That's what happens to happen in this story. But that's not the point because the rich man is in hell looking up at Abraham who was also a very wealthy person in his day. And he's in heaven. Okay? So please don't mix that up. But it does give me the opportunity to talk about a, a false teaching, what I believe is a false teaching that's out there in Christianity today, which says that if you are in God's favor, if you, if you will do all the things that God wants and have enough faith that God's going to make you healthy and wealthy and everything's going to work out. And if you're poor or if you have problems, it must be that you don't have enough faith. And there are pastors out there teaching that. And I don't know what you do with this story. Because the guy who is poor, who they would say doesn't have God's blessing, is in heaven. And the guy who is rich, who they would say has God's blessing, is in hell. Okay? Just a, a really easy place for me to stop and say, you know what? That's not how it all goes. But the important point here is that the physical body wears out and the spiritual body continues. The spiritual body moves on. We know that the earthly tent we live in is destroyed. We have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Understand that? Our soul does live on. Our soul goes on to this place that is going to be beyond description. It's going to be beyond a place where anybody is ever going to understand how great it's ever going to be again. And that's what's going to happen. So what does he say here? We know that the earthly tent we live in, I love that, is destroyed. We have a building from God. How many of you like the tent camp? Can I just ask that question? You know about motels, right? You understand? You just call up like Expedia, you go online. And, I mean, I, mean uh, I don't understand it. If I go on vacation, I, tent camping and vacation don't go together. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that, that, that just doesn't make any sense to me. It's, it doesn't make any sense to me how that's all going to work out. As a matter of fact, when you go on and you see 2 Corinthians 5, it says, for while we were in this tent, we groan and we are burdened. That's tent camping. Am I right? That's exactly what it is. I love this analogy. It's really, really good. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me. Okay. But, but the point of this story is that our body is a tent and our body wears out. Do you feel that? Do you understand that? Your tent is sagging a little bit now, right? It's not, not the way that it used to be. One lady told about she worked with nursing homes and she took her four-year-old daughter in a lot. And she said her four-year-old daughter was just fascinated with all the accoutrements that go with old age. You know, the wheelchairs and the walkers and the canes. And, and she said she walked into a room one time and her little four-year-old daughter for the first time saw a pair of false teeth in a glass. She said, I just, I just prepared myself for the barrage of questions that I knew was coming. And the little girl just said, the tooth fairy is never going to believe this. (laughs) 
This, this body that we live in now, it's, it's temporary. We groan and we are burdened, okay? Am I right? Am I right? Now, I don't know what you do with the whole idea of near-death experiences and the people on earth that have gone ahead and, you know, seen things and all that kind of stuff, but, but you've got to talk about it when you're talking about it in here. I have a friend who's a pastor down in Joliet, and he uh, had a heart attack and coded on the table three times. Um, you know, said every time he coded, every time he was gone, he was someplace that he felt like was heaven or paradise or something like that. <laughs> the reason he was telling me the story is because he said when he was there, there was a figure that was like that he thought was probably Jesus. He couldn't see his face, but he felt like Jesus was standing beside him. And Jesus said, you need to go back. You need to go back. I'm sending you back because you've still got work to do because there's going to be revival in the south suburbs. And he said, and Parkview is going to be a big part of it, and you need to pray for Tim Harlow because he's going to be under attack from Satan. That was literally what he got from his near-death experience. So I take that seriously. And so please do pray for me and us. Because, and please pray that there is revival in the south suburbs and Joliet and here and all the way around. That's what I want to have happen. Well, I don't know how to, I mean, this is a pastor. This is a, a, a mature believer guy who, who had this experience. I don't know what to do with all of them. I've been reading several of the books. Evidence of the Afterlife was written by a medical doctor named uh, Jeffrey Long, who uh, interviewed 1,300 people who had near-death experiences. And he said it, the, 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 the problem with them is that they're all the same. They're congruent. He said, the reason I started believing, he said it made, it's made me a better doctor and it's made me believe in the afterlife because everybody seems to have the same experience. And he said it crosses age and cultural boundaries so it can't be just like everybody, you know, watch the same movie. And he said it's especially interesting with the children who don't even have a fully formed idea of death yet and yet they're having the same experience. Seeing loved ones, you know, having, having uh, somebody like Jesus close by, all these different things, the, the, the things that are congruent in all the stories. He said the children were really fascinating. Of course, uh, you know, in 2010, Heaven is for Real came out by, uh, you know, a little boy and his, his dad who was a pastor, who this three-year-old has this experience. It was 44 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. People were just fascinated by it. He saw God. He was big. He had golden hair. He had wings. He saw Jesus. He, and Jesus had a horse that was the color of the rainbow. And he, had, he saw David and Samson and all these. I, I, don't know, I don't know what to do with all these things. I just know that it's true that there is something that goes on. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite writers. And he said when his wife Joy died, he said, she smiled, but not at me. I've, I've seen that happen, people. I mean, I've been in the room with people dying, and, and I've, I've literally seen that happen. There, there seems to be some kind of a connection to something on beyond at the moment that they're taking off from here. I've seen it. It doesn't matter. You don't need to know it. You don't need to believe it. It doesn't matter how it all works because all we need is the unchanging Word of God that we already have. It seems that the Apostle Paul maybe even had an out-of-body experience one time or a near-death experience because he, he didn't write about it, but it gave him perspective and here's his perspective. He said, therefore, we are always confident and we always know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident. And I say, and I would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. You got a tent here or you got a permanent home later. Where would you want to be? Second thing is you're going to know your eternal space. 
Okay? You're going to know your eternal space. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Well, Abe says, well, I can't because between you and me is a great chasm that has been set in place so that those who want to cross over from here to you cannot and nobody can cross over from there to us. That's kind of a gripping story. That, those are the words of Jesus, my friends. You need to understand that. Now, let me, let, me, let me address something here. Most of you grew up with the doctrine of purgatory. Uh, best definition of purgatory I can come up with is it's kind of a hellish timeout, Right? I don't understand. You pay for your sins again. It might be six days. It might be six years. It's a, it's a form of doing penance, doing penance in heaven. All right? What you need to understand is that um, purgatory was not a doctrine of the church until 1439. It was added at the Council of Florence in 1439. In other words, for the first 1400 years of church history, this doctrine wasn't there. And if you go look up in the New Catholic Encyclopedia, it says the doctrine of purgatory is not explicitly stated in the Bible. And, and I agree with that. As a matter of fact, I would say it contradicts the things that are in the Bible because Jesus came to die once for all, the Scripture tells us, for all of our sins. And, and we're told that the sacrifice for sins of Jesus on the cross was enough to pay for all of your sins and my sins and all the sins that we're going to do. The doctrine of purgatory, to me, seems a little bit like a bad car salesman. Okay, you know what I mean? Like you go in and you like agree on a price for the car and the guy says, okay, this is going to be the price of the car. And you're like, okay, well, where do I sign? And he goes, well, wait a minute. Do you want tires? Because that'll be extra, right? You know what I'm saying? I mean, how, how would there ever need to be extra payment for my sins if Jesus went through that cross for me? It doesn't make any sense. God is not going to double charge you. Or, or, or maybe let me say it this way. Jesus Christ said, it is finished from the cross not, well, we're off to a good start here. All right? Once you're done here, it is your final answer. Now, I know you have other questions, like what happens in the in-between time? I got this last week. I figured I might as well go ahead and ask it, answer it. Uh, you know, what happens in between? You know, where's Peter been in between, you know, dying and judgment day? What's going to happen to me in between judgment day? Am I going to be like a vampire laying there for 500 years waiting for Jesus, you know, in my coffin? Oh, no. Here's a couple of answers for you, okay? Some of you are a little too serious on that. No, that, you're not going to be like a vampire. There's no such thing. Okay, two answers. Number one, this is deep. Are you ready? Time is only a dimension that works here on this earth. There is no time when we leave this dimension. I feel like, you know, but think about it. What is time? Time is about our bodies being governed by the sun. That's what time is. And when we leave this dimension, there is no time. So it's possible that from the moment we die, we are translated immediately to judgment day. That's possible. Number two is, and, and there is scriptural evidence for this, maybe there's a waiting place where we go before we go to our final resting place. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And maybe paradise is the place where we're still with Jesus and it's still a great place, but it's not our final destination. And, and Hades is the place where you go, where, Lazarus, or where the rich man was, where you wait until your final destination. I don't know, but either way, your final destination, your choice of accommodations has been reserved. Very, very important. 
Jesus said, again, today you will be with me in paradise. Not in purgatory, not a place where you're going to work off these sins because you just died on the cross for a bunch of sins that you did and nobody paid them off yet. No, you're going to be with me and it's going to be good. But the rich man, not so good. He's in hell. What is, what is that all about? Remember when our family was younger and all our kids were at home, we took a trip over to Cedar Point, Ohio, to that, you know, that park over there? Because at the time, they had the world's largest roller coaster. I don't know if it still is. Millennium Force. It was 310 feet high, 92 miles an hour. And we were like, all right. We were adrenaline junkies. Even though I had girls, we were all about it, you know? So we're in the two-hour line waiting for Millennium Force. <laughs> And my daughter, my oldest daughter, you have to understand, Rachel, when she was born, was 30. Okay? Am I right? She was 30. So she's always like this deep philosophical girl. So she comes up with a game. We're like, well, we've got to pass two hours. What are we going to do? You know, maintain control of the railing. I mean, well, there's got to be other things we can do. So Rachel came up with this game. She said, I know. Let's think of all the things the world would be better off without. And we'll do the alphabet, starting with A. I mean, she was like 16. I mean, you know, that, that's, that's, what we, that's what she thinks. That how, that's how she thinks. But it's really kind of fun when you get into it. A, ants. The world would be better off without ants. B, boy bands. Easy answer. <laughs> C gets tricky. Cats, cubs, country music, so many things. See what I'm saying? Now you're going to want to go home and play this philosophical game, aren't you? <laughs> so when we got to H, whoever's answer turn it was said, hell, the world would be better off without hell. And I've got to admit, that's a, that's a really good answer. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, there's no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than hell. If it lay in my power, I would pay any price to be able to say truthfully, everybody's going to be saved. But then whoever's turn it was said, you know what, that wouldn't work because what would we do with Satan? So my kids, they had it all figured out all that time. Jesus said, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The reason that hell is there is not because God wanted to punish us. The reason hell is there is because God needed a place to put Satan and if you're hung up on the answer of how could a loving God send people to hell, the answer is he doesn't. They choose to go there. Really that simple. It really, really is. Why would a judge choose to send somebody to prison? He doesn't. They just choose to go there. Satan chose to rebel, and God created hell so that Satan would have a place. But Satan made his own decision. All right? And my friends, I believe that it's real. Jesus warned about hell more than he talked about heaven. And what will hell be like? Well, from this story, what we can see is that it will be a place of loneliness because he said, send Lazarus down to help me. He said, it will be a place of despair. There's a great gulf in between here and there. He said, it will be a place of regret because I, I need somebody to go tell my brothers because I wish I would have lived my life different. And I know many people don't believe in hell. There are a lot of writers out there are trying to, you know, write it away. I heard about one girl who was dating this guy, and she told her mom, she said, Mom, I'm dating this guy, and I really like him. I think I might marry him, but he, does, he says he's a Christian, but he doesn't believe in hell. Mom said, oh, don't worry about it, honey. Marry him anyway. We'll make him believe in hell. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, while I'm at it, here's hell frozen over, okay? That's hell, Michigan. Uh, um, 13 verses, 13% of Jesus' teaching is on hell. 54 verses in the Bible on hell. 
And again, I've been reading several books that have said, you know, there can't be a hell, and they do all this great mental gymnastics to try to get away from it, but it really doesn't make any sense to me because it seems like it's so obvious in the Bible that there's got to be a place where Satan goes. And here's the other thing. I just love this J. Vernon McGee quote. Here's the other thing about the universe, okay? Look, this is God's universe, and he's doing things his way. And you may think you have a better way, but you don't have a universe. You get your own universe, and then we can talk. I love that, okay? It's possible that you don't understand everything that's going on. But if you want to go, if you want to figure out about hell, just go read the Gospel of Matthew. Literally, it could scare the hell out of you, literally, as you read, and you read what Jesus talks about. And that's not my point. My point is that there is an eternal resting place for everybody. Cardiologist Maurice Rawlings did a book called Beyond Death's Door where he interviewed near-death experienced people. And there was one guy, he said, had an experience where he was coding. Every time he would die, he, 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 would, he would come back and, and he would say, please, you've got to save me, I'm in hell. And then he'd die again and he'd come back and it happened several times. And he said the guy was so freaked out when he came back, the first thing he did was he went and, 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 and gave his life to Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, if you talk to the people who interview near-death experiences, there are a lot of stories of people who didn't have great near-death experiences, but after a while, after they come back, they start changing their story. Because, I mean, who wants to admit they went the wrong direction? C.S. Lewis says, what are you asking God to do? Are you asking God to wipe out all sin and give us a fresh start? Well, he did. Are you asking God to forgive everyone? Well, he did, okay? Are you asking God to leave everybody alone? C.S. Lewis says, that's really what hell is. It's really about leaving God leaving us alone. And he finishes up by saying, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. G.K. Chesterton says it this way, hell is God's great compliment to the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human choice. Without hell, there is no choice, and without choice... Heaven is not heaven. Heaven is hell. And we're back to why did God put the the bad tree in the garden and tell them not to eat of it? Because He wants to give us choice. Now here's the problem. Here's the problem. The problem is that nobody on the earth understands how much of God is already here. The most pagan atheist in the world does not understand that God is here. They do not understand that when they look up into the warmth of the sun, when they look up into a bright blue sky, that God is present in all of this. They don't understand that God is actually holding back evil even on this earth. That God can heal and restore and He can do things on this earth. They don't understand that the book of James says every good and perfect gift is from above. So everything that's good is here is from God. They don't understand that. And the problem with that is that in hell there's not going to be any of God. So there can't be any light because God is light. There can't be any love because God is love. Randy Alcorn says that this may be the most important thing you hear the whole weekend. For Christians, his present life is the closest thing they will come to hell. Hallelujah. For unbelievers, the closest, this is the closest they will come to heaven. That's gripping, isn't it? That's the closest thing. What about the good space where Lazarus went? <coughs> Abraham's side, place of blessedness. Again, I talked about this last week. Go, go back and and see the sermon again. I'm going to talk about it some more in the next couple of weeks. You'll, you'll get a good taste of where we're going to go. But can I just, I just point out one more thing? Obviously, there's no reincarnation. Okay? If God wanted you to be a cockroach, he would have made you a cockroach. Okay. 
But this place that we're going, immediately when we die or on Judgment Day, it, it is going to be paradise. It's going to be perfect. And again, like I said last week, the most important thing is that Jesus is going to be there. That's the only thing that's really going to matter. So here's the sequence of events after you die, as I see it. All right? First thing that happens is your spirit is taken. The tent is gone, the caterpillar sheds its cocoon, and we go on to a better existence. Number two, immediately we're in the presence of the Lord. <clears throat> whether it's paradise, whether it's heaven, whatever it is, we're with God. The Bible says that the trumpet will sound, or to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Okay? There's only those two things. Number three, we wait in paradise, some, something, someplace until the second coming. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep or died in Him. And we, will be, we will be in this place, in the presence of God, in a good part. We'll either be part of the second coming or we'll be here to ride on the way up. Either way, it's a good day. Number four, we're given a new body. We're given a new body. It's going to be perfect. We've talked about this a lot. It says the trumpet sound will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will all be changed. It's all going to be perfect. Those who are wrinkled will be smooth. Those who are crippled will be whole. Those who like line dancing will like golf. Everything, everything's perfect. I, I do have one more good story about the new body. Uh, it, Hayden Shaw is a friend of ours in the congregation. His dad did revivals a lot back in the day when they had those revivals. He said he went to this church one time, and, and they had a choir singing, and uh, they hadn't really thought the hymn through very much, and they had divided the ladies and the men up. And he said he's up on the pulpit, up, up on the podium, and, and the ladies are singing, I'll have a new body, and the men are singing, Praise the Lord! Yeah, we're all excited, okay? We really are. Number five, we will face judgment day. We will face judgment day. In the past, God overlooked ignorance, but now he commands everywhere, every people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day, nobody knows when it is, when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, Jesus. And he has given proof to all this by raising this man from the dead. It's going to be a great white throne. There's going to be... The dead seated all in front of it. There's going to be two big books. Book of all of our sins. And the book of life. And the book of all of our sins doesn't matter if your name is in here. And there will be two choices. I'll put them both on the same screen. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. But... There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from this book. See, if you're in this book, you're free of this book. That's what Jesus did. Period. Last thing is you're finally going to understand what is important. The rich man was in hell and um, he realized the opportunities he had missed. He said, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house because I have five brothers and let him warn them so that they will not come to this horrible place. I think it's the most telling part of the story is that we're going to understand when we get to this other side of this, we're going to understand what all of our priorities are. That's why bringing heaven to earth and earth to heaven for me is such an important deal because it's not God's fault. Peter says God does not want anybody to perish. He has everybody. He wants everybody to come to repentance. That's God's deal. Okay? You need to understand that. Our deal is to make sure people know. Hell is not a place where God designed this place so he could send people to that he didn't like. 
It's a place for Satan and the people that decide to follow him. Our job is to make sure that nobody goes there. I was in uh, New York City this week doing some fundraising things for church planting, and I had a part of my afternoon free, so I was working on my sermon. I was working on this part right about the time I, I I was looking down from this hotel I was staying at in midtown Manhattan, and I was just looking at all the people running around. You know, how, you know how it is in the city, but New York City especially, just people everywhere. And it really gripped me. I mean, that's, that's why we plant churches in New York. You know that only 3% of the people in New York City are believers? 3%? I'm talking about a mission field. And I'm looking down at them, and I'm just wondering, someday are they going to be looking up at me from across the chasm, saying, hey, could you send somebody to dip their finger in water and help me? Could, how come you didn't start more churches in New York? How come you didn't tell me about Jesus? Are they going to be like that? It motivates me now. It's not going to be like that in the future. When I'm there, when Judgment Day happens, there is nothing in this text that that tells us that Lazarus is able to see down into hell. And we know that when we get to heaven, everything is going to be perfect. Matter of fact, Calvin Miller said it really well. The only scars in eternity are those that mark the hands of Jesus. You're, You're not going to have regret in heaven. You're not going to be looking back on all the missed opportunity. Those people are going to be looking back on missed opportunity. What I'm trying to get you to understand is that we have missed opportunity right now. And that's what motivates me. And you may think you're halfway serious when you tell somebody to go to hell, but the truth is you would have to hate them an awful lot for that to be a reality. And that's not really the problem for me. You know, the problem for me is how many people will spend eternity in hell who, who I never told to go there. That's not the problem. How, how many people are going to spend eternity in hell that I just didn't bother telling them not to go to hell? I don't want this to be scary for you. If you're a believer, if you're in Christ, you have the hope of heaven, Period. Uh, one of the slogans of Doomsday Preppers is, you're better off prepared than scared. Okay? And, and, and the Bible even tells us, I mean, listen to this. God is love. Please understand this. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And this is how love is made complete among us so that we can have confidence on the day of judgment. I want you to walk out of here with confidence on the day of judgment. There's no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. That's the way that it's supposed to work. And the Hebrew writer said, we should encourage each other. Encourage each other as we see the day approaching. This is really good news. I know it may not sound like it from this story, but it's really good news. Because someday we're out of here. Jack Arnold didn't know it was going to be his last sermon. He was a pastor of Covenant Presbyterian in Orlando, Florida. And he was preaching one day. He didn't know it was going to be his last sermon. He was preaching along uh, from his life verse, Philippians 121 where Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he goes on and he talked about what Paul said, you know, this whole idea that Paul had of, you know, I I, want to be here because i got work to do, but I want to be with Christ. I know that's going to be better by far. And Jack had just quoted Charles Wesley who said, until my work on earth is done for Jesus, I'm immortal. And when my work on earth is done, I'm out of here. And he said, I don't know about you, but when my work on earth is done and I go to be with Jesus, that's going to be gain for me. And when I go to heaven, and he clutched the pulpit, and he swayed a couple of times, 
and he collapsed of a heart attack, and he died. Medical personnel couldn't rescue him. Can you imagine that? Matthew Henry wrote, it ought to be the business of every day to prepare for our last day. Might be right now. Might be today. He said, when I go to heaven, and then he finished his next sentence, in heaven. Can you imagine that? Imagine finishing your next sentence in heaven, and imagine your friends and your family not finishing their next sentence in heaven. That's why we need to be prepared. I mentioned that only 3% of New York City uh, are professing believers right now. That's triple what it was before 9-11. There was only 1% before 9-11. There was a moment when people got some clarity in our entire world, I think, when, when they realized that this is a tent that we live in, and it changed things for some people. And maybe this sermon, maybe this message, maybe Jesus' words today could be that change agent for you if you don't have Jesus. And I pray that maybe you will be that change agent for the people that are around you because we just don't know when it's going to be. And on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, but we will have made our minds up. So we're going to have communion right now. Please, please, please understand that it's because of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ that we go to heaven. Not because we're good at telling other people about Jesus. Not because we're good, period. Not because of anything that we do. And there's no way we could ever do penance for our own sins because there's just too many of them. It's all about this. And if you have Jesus, I want to encourage you all the more as I see the day approaching. Let's pray together. Lord, for those who have you, um, let us not be selfish with the good news. It's kind of dumb. If it's good news, that's what you told us it was. Good news of great joy for all people that a Savior is born. Then that's what we ought to be doing is making it news. And news is something you don't keep to yourself. You share it. And Lord, we thank you that it is good because we're going to be in heaven because of you. For those who are around us, Lord, Help us find the balance of being able to tell them about you and not beating them over the head with the Bible at the same time. It's a, it's a tricky balance. Everybody's got to make their own decisions. Help us as we do that. Help us as a church, as, as we try to reach more people and as we plant more churches and as we do all the things that we're doing to try to bring heaven to earth and earth to heaven. I pray for us. And Lord, I pray for people in this room right now who may not know if their name is in the Lamb's book of life. Let them understand it's as simple as asking for it to be put there. It's as simple as Expedia. It's just about making a reservation. It's just about talking to you and saying, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. I want to follow you. Uh, sure, we've got a long road ahead of us. We have to be disciples. We have to follow you. But, but our salvation is based in the fact that you died on the cross and we accept it. So if there are people in this room, let them turn their hearts to you right now at this very moment and say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want you to forgive me for my sins. I accept you as my Lord and my Savior. Lord, I just pray that you'll be with us as we commune right now, that you'll help us to remember this gift of your body and your blood 
that paid for all of our sins. It is finished. That's what you said. Thank you, and we encourage each other with these words. In Jesus' name, amen.